0: A great prayer, a lot to pray for uh, as we continue this morning through our sermon series of First Peter. Uh, it's a, a letter that Peter wrote to some believers in the ancient world. This is in the first sort of um, generation after Christ was crucified. Um, thanks again for being this morning. And, and um, if you haven't been with us, been here at Trinity, I would encourage you to um, go online and you can listen to some of the past sermons and you can get a, a sense for where we've been um, as we walk through this letter. We, we will spend the next uh, few months really going through the letter of 1 Peter uh, so you can get all that history. We've got a road trip coming up. It's great road trip material. Um, we don't do any podcasts yet. We're not that clever, but soon. I don't know. That's over-promising. So, you know, I'm going to continue in 1 Peter today, Um, and even though I pray against it, we we always pray against it, um, there's every chance that when you talk about religion, right, I mean, it's one of those things that you risk offending people. Just, you risk it. Especially when you talk about how we should live in response to the Bible, there's every chance that you will offend people. So that's the—I guess—that's the first warning. Like, if you didn't know, you're at a church, um, and I'm going to talk about the Bible and how it should affect our lives. So you might be offended. If you're not offended, um, I'm also going to talk about politics and government, as Bill mentioned. And so, uh, there's every chance that if I don't get you on the first loop, we'll come back around, and your time is coming. Equal opportunity offender uh, this morning. Yeah. That's my my pledge. But in seriousness, you know, this section of First Peter. Uh, And the letter, this marks the start of what I think are some of the most challenging verses in the letter. And the reason I think these next set of verses are particularly tough is because they they cut right to the core of something that we care a lot about, and that's our freedom. I wonder what you think about when you hear that word, freedom. Maybe you think about uh, the first time you got your driver's license, you know, that, that feeling that you could go nearly anywhere uh, that a tank of gas would take you. Maybe it's even earlier. Maybe it's when you first had, had permission to, you know, ride your bike. I remember that feeling for me. When, when I first had permission to ride my bike farther than a block away, there was a freedom that came to that, you know. Um, it, it was a whole new world to explore. Um, but that, that freedom came with responsibility. Yeah, whether on a bike or driving a car um, on an electric scooter, hypothetically. Uh, there are rules of the road to help guide us and keep us safe. And so today, what we're going to look at is how your status, if you are a Christian, gives you both freedom and obligation. Right? So after we read from, from Peter's letter here to, in a minute... I want to continue developing this concept that we've heard a little bit over the past month and a half, and that's this concept of exiles. Um, Among other things, that status means that we are to have a posture of obedience, okay? That status that we have as exiles, among other things, means that we're to have a posture of obedience. In verses 11 and 12, they are going to set up the entire chapter to follow, They've reinforced our status as citizens of another kingdom. And the tension, and this is what's coming up for the next month, the tension is how our citizenship of another kingdom intersects with other relationships. And so the relationship, as Bill said, that that I'm going to spend the majority of our time uh, covering today is between ourselves and government. And you can see, this is, these are complex topics. There's a lot, of ground, uh, a lot of ground to cover, right? So, you know, you can sort of put your, put your, your floaties on, right? Because we, we are going in deep today. All right. Now, as we turn to the scripture, uh, please stand with me in honor of God's word. If you need a Bible, there are some at the, in the middle of the rows. If you don't have a Bible of your own, that is yours. We'd love for you to take that one home with you as a gift from us. Now I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God? You see. So I, start, I started talking, um, started out talking about this concept of freedom because that word and and really that idea I think is so enmeshed with our culture. Um, we are in Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States in, uh, of America in 2018. Um, right, Freedom is just something that is um, in some cases just inextricably linked I think to to our uh, national identity this word so just yesterday, I was looking at coverage of Hurricane Florence, and there 's a video of this guy standing in the middle of the street somewhere in myrtle beach i don 't know maybe some of you uh, have seen this video uh, he 's in the middle of Myrtle Beach south carolina he 's got long hair right which i 'm I don't know if he knew the hurricane was coming and started like growing this out in January or something, but he's got really dramatic long hair and he's holding up an American flag, standing in the middle of the street, winds blowing 90 miles an hour, right? And he's just like, you know, move his head. I can't do it right now because I've got this microphone on and I'll throw off the sound. But he's out there standing, no shirt, wait, you know, stand with the flag. And so this is like gold for a local news reporter. And so the the local reporter asked him why he was doing it. And I kid you not, this is what he said. (laughs) He said, this is Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Just being free and American. I don't let nothing oppress me, especially no dang hurricane. (laughs) That's what he said. That's what he said. (laughs) Y'all, that is not, that's not freedom. That's foolishness. Okay. It's it's hard to even know where to start to unpack that if you wanted, if you wanted to deconstruct that, which I don't recommend doing. Um but you know, one of the things that I want to pull out, I think that that he was combining being free with being American, right? And he just mashes them together. That's the South Carolina word. He mashes them together. And and it it creates and forms his identity. Right? Wrapping up your identity with a country, it's not unique to the United States, though. Look at the pride that people have in their nation during the Olympics or during World Cup. What is, I think, more unique, and this is what I want to speak to it in our context, what is more unique is weaving in this element of freedom. So think of it this way. If I just met you for the first time today and I shook your hand and I said, hi, I'm Shaka, and I'm American, so I'm free to do whatever I want, right? You would think, that's absurd I, at, at which point like a bald eagle comes and lands on my shoulder you know you would think that's, this guy is just extra right? Uh, but, but it does I think beg the question and it's one I want you to consider um, what are the components then of my identity right? and so we get a reminder in verse 11 so maybe take a look at that, at that verse again it says beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles that's really the word to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. When Peter uses the word exiles, it's not because the people reading this letter have literally been kicked out of a particular place. No, it's, it's because as Christians, these readers had no permanent place in this world. Right? Our true homeland is in heaven, where we will eventually be. Peter Peter would have had no delusion about how his status as a follower of Jesus was putting him at odds then with the wider culture. This is a man who had already seen his friends killed because of their faith, and he had seen Christians at large treated differently because of their beliefs. So it's easy to see how he could think of himself as an exile. He didn't belong there. But that exile moniker, that's just as true for us as it was for Peter. Now, as as Bill prayed, I mean, praise God that here in the United States of America, we're, we are not crucified upside down as Peter was, but we are no less exiled. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security because we say the words under God in our Pledge of Allegiance. Okay. Don't feel like we are any more safe or, or belong any more than Peter would have just because we sing the uh, Star Spangled Banner uh, at, in the national anthem at the beginning of baseball games. The fact that witnesses in court swear on a Bible to tell the truth does not mean that our Christianity and our earthly citizenship have been married. Okay? Likewise, we cannot create heaven on earth by infusing our culture with Christianity. So as, as we'll see, as I hope we'll see, we are in fact called to live and act a certain way, but as long as we are on earth, we remain set apart from it because our ultimate citizenship is as followers of Christ. The point is that as exiles, our standards of conduct are frankly higher than the laws of any country. Okay? Our actions, our actions should evidence our home country heaven, rather than our temporary dwelling. So nevertheless, though, and here's where some of the tension starts, in verse 12, Peter tells us to keep our conduct honorable among Gentiles, and that is shorthand for non-believers. So the command to live honorably might seem it might seem obvious, but here's why I think it's not. You could hear that reminder about being exiles, and think that that gives you license to do whatever you want. Right? That would that would be the I don't let nothing oppress me, especially no dang hurricane approach. Right? Imagine going to a country uh, where they drive on the left side of the road, but you continue driving on the right side because you're American. But it's not, it would not be a satisfying thing uh, when you either get pulled over or when you cause a collision to claim, well, I'm actually not from this place and you know, I'm gonna drive how I drive. You do you, I do me, and we'll meet when we, uh, uh, at the intersection. That would, that would be a wrong way to approach this, right? No. Peter reminds the readers, we are not going to use our faith as a cover-up for doing the wrong thing. And there's some very tangible reasons that we're to live honorably in the world, no matter where we are. So I want to I go through some of these, and if you're following along with the outline in the, um, in the worship guide, we are technically still in the introduction, so I'll let you know when we change. <laughs> A couple tangible reasons to live honorably in the world, and one reason to be mindful of our conduct is to push back against the things that are said about Christians, Right, see in verse 12, where, where it reads, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Some translations uh, use the word slander there. And interestingly, this is something I learned in my preparation for this sermon. Early Christians had to deal with their own version of fake news. Okay? They were sometimes accused of cannibalism, for instance. I didn't know that. They were accused of cannibalism because they claimed to eat the body, because they claimed to drink the blood. Right? And note, Peter doesn't tell Christians that what they should do is they should go on the offensive with a slick public relations campaign. Instead, he implores us to live in a way that shows our goodness to society at large. Remember that he's saying this, by the way, in the context of a Roman pagan society. That, that is to say, um, Peter's instruction isn't maybe what, what we might hope for, frankly. He doesn't say live honorably when those norms are exactly the ones you would have chosen for yourself. No. We are to evidence good conduct, period. And Jesus gives a similar example. When the Pharisees try to trap Jesus about paying taxes, right, paying taxes to a pagan co- government, he, he's got a coin and he turns it over in his hand and he, he looks at it, he sees uh, the image of Caesar on one side and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's this might be a a little uh, part that that you pull out um, in March when it's time for us to pay our taxes again. And believe me, let me tell you, um, I do not like paying taxes. But if I am to be persecuted, let it be because of my allegiance to the King of Kings, not because I failed to write a check to the U.S. Treasury. We are to keep our conduct honorable among those uh, uh, who we live around. Verse 12 gives another reason to keep our actions honorable in the eyes even of unbelievers. And that's because our conduct may chip away at the hostility that others feel about Jesus. So that by this day of visitation, that's the language I'm looking for, whether that's on heaven or in earth, We're not exactly sure, but those same people who viewed us with skepticism will come to eventually glorify God. We can't say with certainty that people will come to faith because of our behavior, but our conduct shouldn't be the barrier that blocks someone from being able to see God's light. So that's another reason. Peter gives us these broad principles before laying out more specific framework to guide our interactions with various groups and institutions. And he reminds us, right, we're exiles, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, on this earth temporarily but eternally bound to Jesus. If you are a member of Trinity Church, your identity is defined primarily as a Christian. Not as a Nashvilleian or as a student, as a husband, wife, friend, daughter, son, etc. Christ gives us a new identity. And despite being citizens of heaven, and maybe maybe even because of that status, we are to maintain good conduct. By this conduct, we rebut the slander that comes our way. We force the world to consider our actual identity as followers of Jesus rather than becoming fixated on bad actions, right. Okay. That was the introduction. Let me tell you what's coming. I'm going to talk about the commands then to fear God, which is really the chief command in this letter, but then I'm going to spend uh, actually the bulk of the remaining time talking about honoring the empire and being subject to human institutions, I'm going to spend the most time there uh, because that's where I think our our status as exiles uh, intersects with the command to submit to authority and that's really where the where the the tension is I suspect that's where I feel the tension and maybe some of you do too so fear God so hopefully you understand how as a follower of Christ you have a new identity right that that is really key we talked about that with the youth this morning and in Sunday school. That identity piece is key, and it's really what's going to inform the chapters to come, the rest of chapter two and even chapter three. Now, from that foundation, we can examine the instructions for how we go about daily life. And, and that's why I titled this sermon Christian Ethics. Ethics are a set of principles that govern behavior. So think about it this way. It's, it would be impossible to create a set of rules that anticipates every action or decision you'll encounter over the course of your life. You couldn't even do it for a day. You probably can't even do it for an hour, right? It would be an infinitely long flow chart. If, if this, then that, if this, then that. You couldn't do it. Instead, our ethics help us know what our default setting should be. That's, that's what, what we want to understand. And I think this is really important, actually, the younger you are. So if you, I'm not going to put a number on that. If you consider yourself to be young, listen up. Now, now is the time to set those ethics in stone. Right now, before the road gets so cluttered with distraction that you forget where you were going in the first place. This is the best time to to set those ethics up. So, Even though these verses list high-level instructions um, and and instructions for different classes of people, different groups of people, I'm not going to um, dissect each one and each verse individually. I'm going to focus on those two, fear God and honor the emperor. Now, the most important one is covered at least twice by Peter, once in verse 13 and again, again in verse 17. He starts out with the phrase, Be subject for the Lord's sake. And the way we might write it today is probably reverse. We would probably say, for the Lord's sake, be subject. Right? For the Lord's sake. That's, that's going to be the starting point. That means that everything that follows that intro is done because of our relationship to God. It's another way of reminding us of who we ultimately answer to. Right? It's not anybody that you can see here with your eyes. Ultimately, we answer to the Lord. And in verse 17, we're told very plainly, to fear God. If you haven't read much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, um, that phrase might be something new to you. So just a quick aside. Fear of God is, isn't a paralyzing fear. It's, this is not like fear of heights. Right? Fear of God, it encompasses um, more of a, of a reverence and a recognition of how awesome God is. And that's going to include um, things like his power, uh, his holiness, his love, his judgment. Right? And those are big concepts. The point is that no one, nothing compares to God in any of those categories. That's why fear is reserved for God alone. Our current president, Donald Trump, cannot make anything as good as the Lord. And... And if Trump isn't your cup of tea, I've got news for you. Barack Obama was equally unworthy of this type of reverence. Right? The same goes for every president we've ever had and every political leader throughout history. God alone is worthy of that type of reverence and that fear. And, and here's the part that might be counterintuitive. And I'm drawing on verse uh, 16. When we fear God and live as servants to him, that is when we are truly free. One one writer uh, puts it this way. One is either a slave of sin or a slave of God. True liberty means that there is a freedom to do what is right. That spoke to me this week. As Christians, we believe that our allegiances matter. They do matter. And we believe that they can have eternal significance. So, the best thing then that we can do is to align our actions with the will of a good and worthy king. That's going to be the first step. Even though we are citizens of another kingdom um, living in this world, right, our instruction. Remains the same, and it transfers, and that is to fear the Lord. Whether or not we are uh, in heaven, whether or not we are in the U.S. Everything else that follows in this chapter ranks lower. So, life, I I think, would be um, far less complicated um, and our, uh, the way that we think about living our life in light of these verses would be far less complicated if Peter had just sort of put a bow on it and just said fear God said it right at the beginning and stopped there right? I- instead he doesn't and he keeps going and we've got to, we've got to explore the rest of these verses <clears throat> we've got to deal with this phrase honor the emperor and that's where, that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time So, one quick note is that these verses show us that God has a purpose for all government. Which isn't to say that all government action is endorsed by God. Okay? And I'll get to that in a bit. For now, um, it will suffice to say that I don't think Christians should call for anarchy. I believe God intends for there to be a government. And furthermore, he calls us to submit to its authority. Now, um, I mentioned the, the youth in Sunday school and before <clears throat> uh, our worship service, you know, we've been reading Peter's letter together and, and considering how context informed uh, the writing, how Peter's context informed this letter. And so I want you to, to appreciate some of the context here today, in my own context. Uh <laughs> When we knew that Matt McCullough was going to be out of town for this week, I said, oh, who wants to preach on on this section? There were were not like seven hands that went up um, quickly and went, oh, yeah, we get to preach about government and religion? Yeah, yeah, me, me, me. No, it was sort of looking around and like crickets. Um, In some ways, I might be the least likely of the elders to preach about this, about this topic. So on the one hand, Um, I teach American government and constitutional law. So maybe you think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. On the other hand, I teach those subjects because I am thoroughly skeptical of government action and interference, right? I am like a doctor who studies Ebola. I want to know everything I can about this so I can defend against it, right? (laughs) One of my favorite collections of writings is the Federalist Papers. These were a series of articles written um, in the lead-up to the American Revolution. So in Federalist 51, James Madison, he articulates how I have often thought about why God allows and even institutes government. Uh, to, To paraphrase, he says that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And if angels were to govern men, we wouldn't need checks on government. right? I think both of those things um, can be true. Uh, but And more, more personally, I'm reminded of plenty of examples of how people who look like me have suffered at the hands of government actors simply because of the fact that they look like me. So I hope you will remember that context and that when you hear me say that submission to government is a duty of Christians, you appreciate that me saying that is evidence of Christ in me. It is not a predisposition towards submissiveness, okay? And to a far greater extent, Peter had reason to be skeptical of government. At a time I mean, I know we sometimes, you may think that we've got it bad at a time when many of our own elected leaders at every level exhibit the personal character that would subject them to church discipline. It's easy to think that we've got it bad, right? But keep in mind that, I mean, Peter had no delusions about the inherent goodness of the rulers that he lived under when he wrote this letter. In fact, he lived under the rule of a despot thousands of miles away when that desperate led a mid-level bureaucrat, Pontius Pilate, basically gamble away the life of Jesus Christ, Peter knew who he was dealing with. He was not predisposed to submissiveness. This is evidence of Christ in him. So given what we know about Peter's context and given what we know about the sinfulness of, of man, in general, we can say this. The command to submit to government is not dependent upon that government being virtuous. Did you get that? Believers are to honor the king, and I'm using that, that phrase, these phrases king, queen, government, president, sovereign, emperor, all interchangeably. Believers are to honor the king if he is a Christian or if he is a non-believer. We are, we are truly blessed with a relatively stable set of government institutions in the United States of America. But even if we were in another context, we would be called to honor the sovereign. Put it this way, if your job suddenly moved you to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, right? It's a global financial center, but it's located smack dab in the middle of an Islamic State. You as a believer would still be called to honor the government. Is that a tough pill to swallow? How would you do it? So I have two suggestions. The first is, while we have an obligation to be respectful of whatever formal authority and authorities we live under, as believers, we are ultimately loyal to God. So if submission to authority is something that you struggle with, maybe it will help you to keep in mind that your obedience it's for the Lord's sake, not for the sake of the ruler standing right in front of you. The second thing that I would advise, I would advise you to follow the rules and the customs of those local authorities up until the point that they would require things of you that the Lord would forbid. And what does that look like practically? Um, I think it mostly means that we have guidance for how to react to government action rather than the values that we try to impose on it. Here's an example. In in Acts 4, uh, Peter, the very same author of this letter, Peter and John, they're in Jerusalem preaching and they were arrested. The Sanhedrin, which was this kind of hybrid religious uh, political tribunal, they were annoyed by their preaching and it probably bothered them that that its own power, the power of the Sanhedrin could be diluted if people started following these, these preachers. At the same time, the members of the Sanhedrin, they didn't want to revolt on their hand. Right? So they decided to release Peter and John, but they sought to limit their speech. And so here's, here's the text from Acts 4, 18. So they called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. And essentially Peter tells them that they will not obey their law if that law's purpose is to keep him from professing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings up another important aspect of what it looks like to submit to the government, and that is accepting the consequences of our actions. Peter stated his position, and he was prepared to accept the consequences of that position. And, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky in our American context. Um, specifically, the First Amendment makes it Tricky, And I'm not even thinking about the religion clause. I'm thinking about free speech. One of the founding principles of the U.S. is the right of people to criticize the government. And, and so this legal right, I think, can really quickly blur the line between criticism of the government and defiance and disrespect. In our, in our modern-day context, what might be a throwaway 30-second post on social media... Would be treason in another country. This is why it's so difficult. I think that uh, this clear legal right in the U.S. of speech it doesn't give us carte blanche to disrespect or uh, disregard the God-given authority of government. Despite our right of free speech, our orientation is to be one of obedience. And the thing is, my guess is that many of you, like me, have wondered, well, how does the Bible, though, speak into a situation where I may vehemently disagree with what the government is doing or asking of us? Right? I, and I take that problem very seriously. And that's, that's kind of where I want to finish. For many people, this is where the rubber meets the road. Everybody, um, everybody knows their their birth date, right? Um, even my, my man, uh, K.W. over here, his birthday today. Uh, I feel like now there's, a, there's like a woke date. The, the, day you, you know, the day you woke up, right? The day you woke up and you realize that the government isn't all George Washington cherry tree fables, right? It's a woke date. So if you consider yourself to be an activist or, or politically astute, here's a question if you have marched or signed a petition, written a letter, if you have, have sat in or if you've been shut out, what was your posture in doing those things? Here's, here's what I mean. Was your goal to make someone in authority look foolish? Or were you seeking the gospel? Were you seeking to share the gospel? Better yet, did you think that you could bring about Heaven on earth. If only a particular ruler saw things your way. Right? Those those aren't the motivations that we're called to as as Christians. But I do think there's space for civil disobedience. Here's another one for you. And and this one this was really frankly convicting to me and has been convicting to me this month. What was your response when you heard that there is someone in the White House subversively taking things off the desk of the president? We don't know specific details, but we need to seriously consider whether that type of action runs counter to our Christian duty to honor the emperor for the sake of the Lord. So how then is a Christian in the United States of America in 2018 to consider acts of civil disobedience? And how are we to just more broadly engage? You know, what is civic engagement? What might it look like in light of the Bible in what are complicated times? So I'm going to give us three approaches. First, first, we as Christians, we can take an approach to social challenges that serves as a guide for later government action. So for instance, um, there is a church here in the Nashville community, kind of um, south of downtown, and they're considering building tiny homes for the homeless on uh, church property. You may have read about this because there's some really interesting zoning um, issues involved. What I think is commendable, who knows how that case will turn out, what I think is commendable is that the church is pioneering an approach to dealing with a major social challenge in our city, right? Homelessness is a major issue in our city, and this church is trying to pioneer its own solution for that. I don't know if it will be successful, but I do believe it's a powerful witness and a powerful way to, to engage civically uh, today. That's the first way we can, we can engage take on social challenges ourselves. The second way to think about engaging with authority is to resist where appropriate. There is a long tradition of God's people simply saying no when government authority would have them act in a way that is contrary to what God would have them do. This is essentially what what Peter and John told the Sanhedrin. Likewise, it's what Lutheran churches told uh, uh, Lutheran churches in Norway did when the Nazis demanded that policies against Jews be announced from the pulpit. They refused to honor the emperor when doing so would directly oppose the tenets of their faith. Augustine said that an unjust law is no law at all. all right? Don't don't miss this point. A law that would have us break conscience with our creator cannot bind us. And if you worry about how God views the unjust actions of governments, remember that God loves justice and he will judge impartially. Just because he uses government doesn't mean that rulers will escape judgment. But that's his decision. The third thing that we can do is we can call attention to injustice. This is one of the most powerful functions of believers and the church as an institution. I think about the work of International Justice Mission. Uh, If you're not familiar with IJM, it's actually not a church. It's an international law firm working to expose and prosecute slavery. It's a Christian, it's non sectarian firm, but it has done, I think, more to eradicate global slavery in the past 50 years than any individual nation. And in many cases, it spurred on government action, right? It has, has um, ignited governments to take the scourge of slavery seriously. That's what we can do. We can call attention to injustice. So in preparation for this sermon, I kept coming back to the letter that uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a Birmingham jail. Many of you have probably read it, but his letter uh, and example, I think, highlight these three ways to engage in authority. So it's kind of a case study, if you will. So in the 1960s, Birmingham was such a hostile place for African Americans, it was actually called Bombingham. By 1963, King's organization, the SCLC, was coordinating with a local group there in Alabama to have a series of nonviolent demonstrations. They wanted to bring attention to the unjust treatment of blacks. Now, notably, they, they delayed the demonstration several times because they didn't want it to conflict with citywide elections, right? How's that for honoring the empire or, or honoring the Emperor while holding fast to your principles they didn 't want to disrupt the pending elections, so the marches were put on pause that's a that is um, pretty antithetical to what we see today I think when the demonstrations finally occurred in april martin luther King jr he was arrested and, and while he was in jail, eight white clergymen from the area they published a a Piece in the newspaper criticizing King and the demonstrations as, as too radical, etc. And so, from his jail cell, he wrote a letter. And first, and these go back to the ways that we can think about engaging civically. First, he notes that unlike the segregationist laws in the city, his movement welcomed people of all race. Right. It served as a guide, therefore, of how the government should have been acting by welcoming people into the fold not excluding. Second, he was prepared for the consequences of effectively saying no when told to go home. He writes, We repeatedly asked ourselves the questions, Are you able to accept blows without retaliating? And are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? King was willing to both stand up to these unjust laws and submit himself to the consequences under the law of doing so. Finally, King makes it clear that even nonviolent direct action, it was a last resort. It was designed, in his words, to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood if if you haven't i urge you to read his letter it's not it's not because i think it's perfect theology but i do think it offers exceptional uh, guidance for how above all else we can fear god and also honor the emperor when when that emperor would pull us in a different direction i think it's, it's offers exceptional guidance for that. It's hard, hard to imagine now, but Martin Luther King Jr. was called an extremist. <laughs> but he was only an extremist in the same lineage as other Christians, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted the Nazis, uh, John Bunyan, who re- refused to give up preaching in the 17th century and, and spent 12 years in jail for doing so. Right? That's a kind of extremist Uh, that they were extremists who still loved the brotherhood but ultimately feared God you may not be called to a moment of resistance but as believers we are called uh, as one writer put it we are called to be the bearer of the word of God as both law and gospel we can hold the world up to the convicting mirror of God's law the problem of course and you probably see it right the problem is that we ourselves couldn't face that same holy standard so we need a way to be to be loosed from the slavery of our own sin from the from the chains of our own imperfection and this is where we come full circle our exile status is possible only because jesus gave himself up on the cross and defeated death, right? He made a way for us to be truly free. And at that point, the whole paradigm of worldly authority changes. think of it this way. Of what consequence are man's laws when we have been freed from sin and death? I don't know about you, but I want to be in the service of a ruler who is good I want to be in the service of a ruler who is powerful and perfect and just, right? Having found that in the Lord, submission is not a chore, it's a gift. Ironically, the one way to gain true freedom is to submit to him. And as his chosen people, if you are a follower of Jesus, he neither calls us to isolation nor to insurrection, Instead, we are called to obedience, trusting that this is the Lord's will and that he loves us. We pray with me? Father, may we trust you more. We believe that you love us and we believe that you want the best for us, Lord. So teach us what it means to be truly free. <clears throat> Teach us what it means to truly fear you. To revere you. To respect you, Lord. For all your power, for all your glory. By your spirit and for your sake, Lord, may we honor our government leaders. Help us to be respectful, knowing that many of their actions don't warrant our respect, Lord. But we do it for your sake, At the same time, guard us from idolatry, Lord. We know that there is no institution on earth worthy of the reverence that we have for you. Nothing compares to you, Lord. Likewise, we know that we are not fit to even approach your throne, so thank you for making a way for us to approach you. Thank you for sending Jesus so that we might come to you and worship you the King of all kings. Amen.